Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Uh, really excited to have my my next guest on the podcast today. Uh, I, for those who are familiar with some of the previous episodes I've done, uh, you'll know that I have spent sort of most of my career kind of working in the context of group homes. And um, uh, as a behavior analyst, working in a group home is 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 is, is, a, is a pretty difficult co- uh, context. And uh, I know a lot of my colleagues struggle in sort of group home settings, especially in terms of kind of getting intervention interventions to be sustainable and kind of last a long time and get a lot of buy-in and you know there's always lots of staff changes and manager changes and so many so many dynamics that are in place that I don't think we learn enough about as uh, as behavior analysts um similarly I think there's a, a lot of uh of uh group home staff out there group home managers that also you know, don't have sort of specific, you know, training or education in working in group homes. Often it's, you know, just sort of moving up the ranks and, and learning from experience, maybe the odd sort of program, you know, maybe a six month sort of training program on supervision or something like that. But there isn't, doesn't seem to be a whole lot of um, guidance around, uh, at least in, in, in kind of in my neck of the woods around how to, how to run these things. And so I'm really hoping that my next guest will be a resource for 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 both groups of folks. So I'd, I'd like to welcome uh, uh, Dr. Christine Bigby to to the show. Uh, welcome, Chris. Hi. Thanks very much for inviting me. Yeah. So 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 fun so fun to do this. Um, normally, I interview I, I interview behavior analysts, and so it's also nice to sort of kind of kind of move outside of that context um, into some other kind of really important areas. So I thought maybe we could just start, but I always like to start with my guests by getting kind of a, a bit of a, an origin story of kind of how they got into the field. So I'd love to know kind of a, uh, kind of how, how you got into the sort of the, the, the field, what field you're actually in um, and, uh, and, and how you came to um, how you came interested in, in, in doing so much research in kind of the area of, of group homes. Okay, so ooh, I'm, it's quite a long story, but I, I, I'm a social worker. That's my uh, discipline background. And I worked in um, multicultural services uh, and income security and ended up really by accident in disability support services. And it was the early 80s and there was an enormous amount of passion uh, and commitment in that field, more so than any other field I'd worked in. So. I decided that was where I was going to stay. Um, and I guess inevitably I moved from doing direct practice, running a team of people that were supporting adults in one of our government services to to doing further study and, and research. I did a PhD about what happens to people when their parents die, um, which was a sort of burning topic at the end of the 80s and the early 90s. Um, and then... And then moved into a, a, a position in, in the university. And one of the first sort of opportunities that, that arose to further research more than just around ageing was to look at the quality of life um, for people who were moving out of one of our, of our largest and uh, first institution in the state of Victoria in Australia, which is where I live. 
Um, so we got to mm. basically evaluate um, what the outcomes were for people as they moved out. But we knew that the outcomes were much were going to be better than living in the institution. But we actually wanted to know what life was like living in a small group home for people. Mm. And we were we were quite shocked. Um, about some of the things that were happening uh, in those group homes. And so we did a lot of ethnographic work um, and I got really interested in, so how can we make this better? Um, and at that time, there was a lot of work being done in the UK by uh, Jim Mansell from the Tizard Centre and his colleague, Julie Beadle-Brown. And, and then together with some people in, in Wales had developed something called Active Support which is a method of, um, it's a practice, it's an evidence-based practice that brings together lots of components. Um, and they would they demonstrated really clearly that if staff use active support, then that will improve people's quality of life and improve people's engagement uh, in, in their all-day, everyday lives when they live in group homes. But the problem was the organisations in Australia had said, oh, we've adopted active support, but actually um, things didn't seem to change very much. So there, there were clear problems about how do you implement it? How do you sustain it? How do you keep it happening in group homes? We know this is an intervention that works, but how do you make it work all day, every day? So I guess that that was the starting point for my collaboration, really, with Jim and Julie and a whole research project that's still going about how do you embed good evidence-based practice into group homes and improve people's quality of life? And as you know, has had a number of strands. Really cool. So, your background is social work, which makes a lot of sense. And you know, there's um, there's a, a fellow out out uh, at the university that I went to, a guy named um, uh, Tim Stanton, um, um, who does who does a lot of work in kind of uh, inclusion and sort of group home type stuff as well. That I've thought about having the podcast. It, it, it does seem like there's a lot of pieces, mm. a lot of areas that social workers kind of study and work on that that really align well with what we're doing. So I think I think this works out really nice. There's actually been a lot of um, movement of late within our own field to sort of think outside the box of of you know behavior analytic journals and start start reading journals from sort of other disciplines. And social work seems to be the the one where a, a lot of us kind of point to. So it makes a lot of sense that you're kind of working in that area. One thing you mentioned. Um, sort of in your overview was this was this thing called active support. I'm familiar with it. I I, I do have um, a, a book on it, and I've I've read some 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 articles on it. But I don't think it's something that's that's very commonly uh, sort of used in North America. I'm, I'm familiar with sort of one study that had been going on, I think, in Minnesota a couple of years back, and, and that was about it. But I've heard lots about active support in sort of the UK and kind of Australian context. So can you just tell us a little bit about kind of what active support is? Yeah, I, I mean, active support, I would argue, is is the sort of should be the foundation of, of practice for direct support workers because it's a, it, it's a practice that brings together a whole heap of different knowledge uh, and different sort of theoretical perspectives into one approach that is easily understandable for staff who may not have tertiary qualifications, who may have relatively low literacy skills. So it's it's based on on a lot of evidence. And and what its what its foundation actually is, 
is, is that it talks about the enabling relationship that staff have with the people that they support and that they use that relationship and the way they provide support to uh, facilitate people to be engaged in in a whole range of activities, whether it's in the home or in the community, and to also enter into sort of social interactions and develop social relationships with people. So it's a practice that, that combines, you know, skills in communication, skills in offering choice and control, skills in task analysis and adapting the type of support that you're providing to the needs of the person uh, that you're supporting. Um, So we've just actually done a sort of analysis of the components of active support and and you can sort of characterise them as, as the way staff provide support to people in terms of offering them opportunities uh, to be engaged in real activities, so not not make-believe activities, not activities that then staff have to come back and, and do again. So it's everyday activities like cooking and washing the floor and emptying the dishwasher, and it's supporting people to actually do those activities and do them successfully, providing the right support mm. that they need. It's offering people choice, so enable them to exercise their preferences and to control what they are doing. Um, and it's ensuring that the messages that you're conveying to start to, to the people you're supporting are absolutely clear so that people know what opportunities are being offered to them uh, and so they can make meaningful choices. What we know is that staff often use verbal communication with everybody and that much of that mm-hmm. is really understood at all. So it's about how you offer mm-hmm. offer choice. And then the other aspect of it is about how you interact with the person um, that you notice and respond to the person's communication, no matter what type of communication that is. You don't only respond when when it's uh, when it's maybe challenging behaviour or demanding communication. So people communicate a lot and they often get ignored by staff. So it's noticing and responding and respecting. So that's a value, but that value comes out in the way you behave and the way you provide support to respecting the person in all the interactions that you have with them and around them. So you don't talk about people in front of them. So you're you're very respectful in terms of of, of people's private and, and people's personal care. Um, and and that you create a sort of an environment, what we call a milieu um, of of inclusiveness and friendliness. So that there's a warm sort of friendly atmosphere. Um, that mm. you're creating. And even if people can't understand what you're saying, there's a sense that you're including them because they can hear the tone of your voice uh, and they can mm. maybe watch what's happening. So those are the sort of elements of active support. And then it's it's sort of been translated down by uh, Jim Mansell and Julie Beadle-Brown in their, their sort of revamp of, of active support um, not so long ago, which is about... It's got four four essential elements uh, that are easy to sort of learn, and and those elements are around every moment has potential. So every moment that you're acting as a staff member, there is potential to support the engagement of the people that you're supporting. You should never be doing anything on your own. Um, you should always be taking advantage of those opportunities, uh, little and often, 
which is about recognising that particularly people with severe and profound intellectual disabilities often don't have the stamina to remain engaged for long periods of time and may need mm. to sort of dip in and out of activities so that you provide support and then you wait if somebody stops and you come back and continue to offer it when, when they're ready again. You don't then complete the task yourself. You, you're just patient and wait for the person to come back if that's what they choose to do. Mm. And it's also little and often is around offering people uh, choices and experiences that they may not have had before. They may say no the first mm -hmm. time, but then it's coming back and offering it again. Maybe they'll like to do mm. it on another day. Um, so it's keeping those opportunities sort of open because people need to, to have those experiences in order to make those sorts of preferences and choices. Um, yes. And the third one is about graded assistance to ensure success, and that will be something that is probably a very familiar concept to behaviour support specialists, which is about... Mm you know, using task analysis to break down uh, the components of, of what somebody might engage in and then providing the, the right type of assistance so that the person can do that task. And that might just be a verbal prompt. It might be a, a gesture or, or showing somebody what, what to do and how to do it. Uh, or it, it might just be hand-over-hand -hand assistance actually doing the task with the person um mm -hmm. and that's the that's the really you know skilled part you have to know the person you're supporting in order to provide graded assistance um and then the last essential is absolutely about maximizing choice and control uh, so that mm -hmm. you're offering choices to people people are understanding those choices and that you're respecting those choices and that they are real choices. So you're not saying, okay, well, do you want to come and make tea now? Rather that, as opposed to, well, do you want to make tea now or would you like to make it when you've, you know, when you've been outside and had, had your sort of evening walk? It, so there's got to be options mm. when you offer choices. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of underpinning knowledge there about how many choices you might offer somebody and about yes. and about recognizing acquiescence and those sorts of things, so offering things in different ways. So yes. at the centre of our diagram, if only you could see it, about active support is engagement. Hmm. So that's the core that everything around all those those skills and the practice is about supporting people to be engaged. Because we know from having spent a lot of time in group homes observing what happens is that people spend a very high proportion of their time being disengaged, which means yes. they're doing absolutely nothing. And that's not from choice because many people with severe and profound intellectual disabilities need active support, need support to be engaged. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I guess the other thing is that, that what we're finding increasingly too is that people with, with, with milder levels of intellectual ability, um, they can, they're often engaged themselves but often in very passive leisure activities. And mm. the role of active support there is to, is to increase the challenge and the, the types of engagement somebody has, the types of opportunities that they might be engaged in. So it's creating, finding new opportunities, new challenges for people, to, which inevitably will develop their skills, but also their quality of life and expand their sort of horizons and their interests. Um, 
So that's sort of active support in a nutshell. That's great. No, that's 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 a good description, I think. And you know, there's I mean, we could totally unpack this in a lot of ways, but there's a couple pieces that I think are are, are important here. Um uh, to sort of look at a little bit, and, and that what, the, the the little and often one, I think, is is a big one. I, I often sort of hear in group homes um, from staff, uh, you know, the phrase, uh, "We tried that, mm. um, we tried that," and you know, he didn't like it, or he didn't want to do it, or he said no, and and then for whatever reason, at that point whatever that was quote unquote gets shelved and never gets tried again we gave him a basketball he held it he dropped it we never tried basketball again and and what you're saying is that we really need to you know uh pull that basketball out a little more often and and give them lots of opportunities to sort of try to engage with it i know that's sort of a uh you know a, a, you know, a very sort of basic example um, but but really not giving up I think is the big message there yeah that's right and it's a fine line between you know not giving up um, and and sort of bullying somebody in a sense um, and, yes. and you know pushing them to do something they clearly don't want to do but it's about keep offering those opportunities and and you'll find that you know people will try them if they're feeling safe and and respected and in right day in the right time. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I don't know what I don't, it's probably not the same cultural thing in Canada, but in Australia, you would be staggered at the number of people that live in group homes whose favorite activity is bowling. Um, and that's yeah. because they've been offered bowling and they've enjoyed it. And therefore that's what they, they've continued to do without any other alternatives, you know, being offered. They might enjoy lots of other things, but they've never had that opportunity. Uh, so it, it's very yeah, important. It's, uh, absolutely, yeah. Bowling, bowling is quite popular here as well. Bowling, uh, puzzles, uh, coloring, and going for long walks with no particular destination. Those seem to be the sort of standard yeah. activities we see in a lot of group homes. I think what what we've been trying with actually just in the final stages of producing a, a very updated and I think much, much better set of training resources around active support for staff, which have some fantastic uh, films, clips of staff supporting people to do a whole range of, of, of activities that you wouldn't normally sort of expect and trying to sort of articulate, you know, it might look like it's just staff supporting somebody, but there's a lot of thought and there's a lot of skill that's gone into um, that support that you see. So I think often staff need to see it in order to understand what mm. active support is and to have new yes. ideas about things. People, it's easy to get stuck in ruts about what people do like and don't like and what's possible to do if you're living in a group home. Yes. It was interesting that you mentioned when you were mentioning sort of some of those opportunities um, uh, you know, for folks to sort of try different things and that, and that every, and it's sort of in every moment, you know, staff, staff should not be doing things on their own. And I think, I think that's a really important message because there seems to be sort of, um, and it's not in every group home, but there seems to be um, a theme in, in a lot of the ones that I've been in where, 
you know, you know, it's more like it's more like uh, sort of a like a like a, an all inclusive resort <laughs> or something where where the the staff does everything for you. They make their bed, your bed. They make your meals. They do your laundry. They sweep the floors. So all you have to do is sit around and relax. Um, and and I know for me, you know, if I go to if I've been to an all inclusive resort once, and you know, after after about seven or eight days of it, I'm. I'm I'm ready to go back home and do things for myself, and um, and yet sort of in the context of these group homes, this seems to be their entire life. Uh, you know, I think that that goes back to issues of culture yeah. and expectations. What are we expecting from staff? What's the purpose mm-hmm. of, of their work? And when we did some of our early sort of ethnographic work. Uh, I mean, staff really did think that their purpose was to look after people and that their work was to get all those tasks done and then they could sit down and have a break and then if they had time, they could maybe take the the people they were supporting out. And and that's actually Mm -hmm. where active support came from in the first place, that people noticed way, way back in day centres that people spent a lot of time sitting around waiting uh, for something to happen or for a particular event yes. or activity. And, yes. and active support just turned that on its on its head and said, what about if we used all these staff to support people all the time rather than yes. waiting for specific activities? Because you'd be astonished at the, the sort of sensory uh, experiences you can have doing everyday domestic tasks. Um, if mm. if you you know if you need sort of sensory uh, stimulation, I mean the, the and, sure. and, it, and it works too out in the community. Um, there's my favourite clip is a you know is in a supermarket where there's a guy who's got quite mild intellectual disability who says to the support worker, well, you know wh- where's the pasta? And, and the support worker sort of shrugs and says, well, I don't know. Why don't you ask the shop assistant? It would have been mm-hmm. so easy for the support worker to say, oh, look, it's over there. But by acting yep. in that way, it creates an opportunity for the person to have a social interaction with yes. the assistant and for the assistant to have an interaction with somebody with an intellectual disability, which is also, you know, very important in terms of broader social change. Absolutely, um, absolutely. And the thing about the thing about relaxing, it's like most <laughs> of us spend, you know, 98% of our time during the day being engaged and some recent research from Judy Biddle Brown in the UK shows that the people in the group homes where she studied they spent 75% of their time not being engaged Um, Mm. and and group home staff often make assumptions that people have done a lot of things during the day at a day program or somewhere else and therefore Mm -hmm. they need Mm -hmm. to relax and Yes, and that's certainly not the case. <laughs> you want to go and spend some time in day programs, would be done, and you see actually it's it's the same. People are spending a lot of time um, doing not very much, and I guess that comes to the the, the danger of staff uh, putting their own values onto the people that they're supporting. You know, because because yes. the staff members are parent and you know does things for their child doesn't mean that's yep. the mindset they should have when they're in a group home and because the because you like sitting down doing nothing when you come home from work, that doesn't mean that the person with intellectual disability does because they've probably spent most of the time doing nothing during the day. So, yes. you know, there's a whole mindset that we need to, to work on in terms of staff, but having the mindset isn't enough. 
it, you've got the skills to put those the sort of values and attitudes into practice. And that's, I think, what's often missing. So staff can articulate sometimes the values they're supposed to be following through, but they don't have the skills to know how to do it. And nobody, nobody uh, provides them with uh, monitoring and supervision about their practice. Um, mm. You know, they'll, they'll, somebody will ask them, well, did you have a good day? You know, what was the day like for the people you supported? And they'll say, oh, it was fine, you know. But actually, mm-hmm. if you spent time looking, it wouldn't have been fine. But they, mm. we can't blame staff. It's because nobody ever provides them with feedback about the practice that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Really, really good. Um, and, and, and you're touching on a lot of things that, that I, I want to get into shortly. Uh, but I sort of one more question kind of around active support. And, and this may be a, a bigger question <laughs> than we have time for. But what, what, what do you need to sort of make active support work and be sustainable? I mean, it seems like a simple process. Uh, and certainly from the outside looking in, it seems like sort of obvious things that we should be doing. But we know that in sort of in, in group homes, and we often have staff that have, you know, sometimes it, it sort of depends. But we often have staff that have sort of been with these agencies for years and years and years and years and have kind of always done it a certain way, often a similar way to things that were done sort of in the institution because some of these staff, you know, worked in those institutions. Um, and so, you know, they, you know as, as we were talking about earlier, they often have that kind of caregiver do for kind of mentality. Uh, how do we, how do we, you know, sort of make that, make that shift for them and, 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 and keep it sustainable? Well, I think that's the, the, the million dollar question that we've been trying to Indeed. answer for the last 10 or so years. And I think we've, mm-hmm. we've, we've now got quite a clear uh, set of understandings about how you might do some of that. And I think the important thing is that you don't say, well, what do we do in relation to the staff? It's like, what do we as an organisation need to do to get the staff who work in this organisation to, to sustain good practice? And so mm. it needs it needs work at the individual staff level uh, in terms of, mm-hmm. of, of training um, and yep. it needs work at the level of the house or the home where they're working in terms of the culture that they're working in, the type of leadership and practice support that, that they're getting. We call that frontline practice leadership. Um, mm-hmm. You can't expect staff to be able to, uh, do good practice if they're not getting good, strong practice leadership. That's, you know, one of the mm. key predictors of good active support. And you need staff too that um, that are knowledgeable about the people that they're supporting uh, and uh, you need the practice leaders who know the staff and the people that are being supported to provide good practice leadership. So it's the way you organise your practice mm-hmm. leadership, the time that you give to the yeah. practice leaders, the role that you expect of them, and we could talk about that for a long time. But then at the senior mm-hmm. organisational level, it's about the senior leadership of that organisation collect- collectively valuing and understanding the importance of practice. And mm. when I say practice, I mean active support practice and the quality and supporting the quality of life of the people that they're supporting, that that is at the forefront mm-hmm. of 
not only what it says on the mission statement, but on all the actions that senior leaders do so that they're giving a message down the organisation about the things that are important in this organisation and the way that Mm. things will be measured and, and reinforced because people tend to do, you know, what's measured or what they get reinforcement for doing. So if you give a, mm-hmm. you know, if you give a message, well, the most important thing from our point of view is that all the houses are clean and tidy, um, and that you've got the paperwork up to date and all the boxes ticked, and you're being compliant, then that's what staff will do. But if you give a message mm-hmm. that practice is really important and what's happening and the engagement levels of the people being supported are the most important things, then you'll get a different set of behaviours. So really, yes. it's a whole organisation approach that you need to embed good active support in an organisation. Mm. And I guess we've that demonstrated you can yeah. do that if you focus yes. on it. Yes. Um, yes. And so these, these um, and, and I'm looking for it, and, and I'll keep in touch to sort of see some of the kind of latest materials and videos that you, you've put together. Does sort of the, you know, for lack of a better term, the active support package that you would bring in, does it sort of include components for training for for that practice leadership, for training that senior management and all that sort of stuff? If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to go to www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop and enter the three secret words. The first secret word is engagement. Well, yes, it does. I mean, we've just developed um, a new training package because there wasn't one around frontline practice leadership, around mm. the tasks that are involved in it and how it should be mm. nice. So what we would, you know, when we work with an organisation First of all, we actually do a training session with the board and the senior executives so that mm-hmm. they understand what active support mm-hmm. is. Um, they don't need really to cool. be able to, to actually do it in practice, although that helps, but they need mm-hmm. to understand what it looks like. They need to understand yes. the language. And then we would train the frontline practice leaders in active support and then in practice leadership. And you know, yeah. our experience has been that really good support workers are often promoted into practice leadership or team leader or house supervisor positions, whatever you Mm -hmm. call them. And then they're not given any training at all in how to do that. And it's, it's a really skilled task. Um, And it's not, it's not a content free task. So generic sort of training in management doesn't help you very much to do that type of frontline practice leadership that's expected you know, in a group home to get good practice. Um, so that's why we, we've developed this this new training package to actually talk about ask the frontline practice leadership, but explicate and show what they look like, the skills that you need, and, and what happens when you do them well and what happens when you mm-hmm. don't do them so well. Because um, yeah. I think sometimes it, it's like people translate practice leadership simply into supervision. Um, yeah, and, and it's much more than supervision. Um, and staff often see supervision as something that's uh, penalising them, and only happens when they've done something wrong. 
rather than yes. seeing something that's sort of developmental. Right. Yeah, so I can talk a bit about practice leadership if you like. Um, but I think getting embedding active support in an organisation has a number of layers, uh, which is mm-hmm. sort of what mm-hmm. to illustrate that you've got to tackle all of them. Yeah, and, and maybe we'll come back to that. You know, I, I see a, I see a podcast episode in almost every topic you're bringing up. I think we could do a whole episode on practice leadership. We could do several episodes on active support. Um, and so I I, I, I want to be uh, conscious of uh, of our time together. And so maybe we'll come back to that. But I also something else you mentioned. You know that I think so. We we definitely active support. I think you know really deals with kind of. Um, sort of those non-existent but perceived barriers that staff sort of create you know we have to do all the work ourselves we can't include them you know um the day program they did a lot of stuff and so they're at the group home and so they need to relax they've sort of created these sorts of you know um uh, problems that don't actually exist and and their solutions for them actually kind of cause more problems mm-hmm. and so active support i think does a really nice job of uh of sort of of, of sort of looking at that and, and and teasing that piece out and as you said you know the practice leadership training that makes a, a lot of sense i mean that really resonates for me i've been really thinking a lot about sort of you know, organization-wide supports. We do. We practice a lot of uh, at the agency I work at. It's sort of positive behavior support kind of focused, and um, um, and and I really see the value of kind of that organization-wide PBS approach, which sounds a lot like kind of what what you're talking about. One one thing you don't you mentioned though, which I think it is 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 a real issue here, and 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 I think it's just wonderful that you've done some research in this area is sort of this box checking sort of need to kind of get all these sorts of papers signed off and, and you know there's there you know there there there's log books there's there's you know medical records there's there's um um you know incident reports there's there's annual reports there's so there's there's a lot of paperwork and um and that tends to be you know even if I even if I have a staff that's sort of you know motivated to engage the individual or 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 a supervisor that wants to be sort of on the floor more often providing that you know um, um, you know sort of on the job monitoring, it always comes back to this paperwork. We've got so much paperwork to do, we don't have time. I'm just curious a little bit about kind of um, the research you've kind of done in, in in the area of paperwork and and sort of have you come up with any solutions that kind of mitigate that? Well, I, yeah, I can. I'm happy to talk a little bit about that. Can I just go back a minute though to to uh, PBS and the PBS approach? Uh, you know, I think sure, PBS yeah. provides a, a a great framework for good practice, but PBS is focused mm. on people with challenging behaviour or behaviours of concern, yes. like. And that's not everybody. And so PBS tends to neglect the people who have more severe and profound disabilities or people with milder intellectual disabilities who actually don't have behaviours of concern. So, you know, at the foundation of of the PBS sort of triangle is actually good practice of active support. And if you're doing that Mm -hmm. for everybody, Mm -hmm. irrespective of whether they've got challenging behaviour or not, then that's the sort of place you should be starting. And if you do that, you'll probably get less people who actually need a more intensive uh, behaviour support plans and assessments. So I think thinking about how active support fits together 
with PBS mm. and how PBS, you know, sort of leaves out a whole bunch of people. It's probably, you yes. know, a good conversation to have it at some point. But going back to the issues about paperwork, um, mm-hmm. there's a number of things that we've we've sort of researched around this. We spent a lot of time um, examining uh, paperwork in organisations mm-hmm. collecting position descriptions and policies and procedures and so on and so forth. And then we mm-hmm. tried to classify it and score it. And then we tried to see, well, does the quality of this paperwork that people have bear any relationship whatsoever to the sort of outcomes uh, for the people that are being supported in these services? And mm-hmm. we basically wasted an enormous amount of time doing that because there's no relationship <laughs> whatsoever, um, which mm. is a very important message. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, my my sense is that Creating position descriptions, things like that, are very important for the thinking that it helps the people doing when you're actually creating positions. But after that, it's a it's an oral uh, process. But support workers don't go and look at their job description every day. What they do is no. they they depend on the culture of the house and the assumptions and what reinforcing reinforcement they're getting from their practice mm. leader and other staff about mm. what they should be doing. But I also had um. PhD student called Claire Quillam, who did her whole PhD about paperwork in group homes. Mm. And it's it's fascinating. There's a number of papers that she published with the other supervisors. Um, but what she found was that staff manage paperwork, she used that term, um, and they they make choices about how much time they spend on it, whether they fill it inaccurately, mm-hmm. um, because they often see it as completely irrelevant to the most important thing, which is about the quality of life of the people they're supporting. So mm-hmm. they may well, if you have to fill in a piece of paperwork about well, what happened on the shift, they may write that at the beginning of the shift, what they think is going to happen. Or they may write mm-hmm. that in terms of what they would have liked to have happened or what they think that the yes. supervisor would like to have happened. So, you know, paperwork is 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 managed by staff. And mm. there's a there's an increasing evidence, both from our work and from, from other work, about the sort of complete mismatch between what paperwork says and what actually happens in practice. So, hmm. you know, s- services where there's enormous amounts of dreadful abuse happening often pass audits which focus on processes mm. and procedures and paperwork. So the auditors yes. are coming into a service and looking at the paperwork rather than actually spending time observing the quality of the wow. practice and what's happening for the people being supported. Um, that's a, I, I just think that's one of the most important issues that we need to pivot around and think, how are we judging the quality uh, of, mm-hmm. of group homes and, and why are we creating so much paperwork? What purpose is mm-hmm. it serving and does it all have to be done if it has to be done does it have to be done by staff at the front line or could it be consolidated mm-hmm. by somebody you know one position in the organization that takes mm-hmm. care of some of the paperwork that has to you know regulators and people demand so we're we're in the final stages of, of developing a, a very simple observational tool that we hope auditors and as as well as practice leaders and quality people within organizations might use and it's based on mm-hmm. our research tool which is which observes and and uh, makes judgments about good active support practice and we've we've sort of translated it into something that's a bit simpler uh, for non-researchers um, 
and so we're we're sort of just we need to field test that now and hopefully that will be uh, developed into a sort of app that can be easily you can be easily trained on and that can be used at different levels to actually observe the quality of the practice and not necessarily and to provide feedback but, but if you want paperwork about quality that's the best type of paperwork which is actually based on evidence about what makes a difference rather than mm-hmm. assumptions about processes and policies that make a difference that's a long-winded answer but i hope that makes sense no, that's a great answer, and and and, and I think you know I, I'm just, uh, just having so many different thoughts here, um, uh, you know around, you know, and, and you touched on it really nicely about kind of why we have so much paperwork. I mean, I, I think you're right. I think a lot of it was created to sort of meet the demands of uh, you know, either auditors. I know for us uh, over here, we we uh, most of our are, are the agencies that kind of provide kind of group home and day program services need to be accredited. Um, and in order to achieve that accreditation there, they have, you know, uh, uh, some you know, folks like auditors coming in and, and really going through files, looking for paperwork. And I remember going through several accreditation processes myself. Uh, in fact, my wife was an accreditor at one point, so I was really familiar with it. Um, um, uh, the 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 sort of re- detailed requirements of in terms of paperwork that they needed, um, but but I, but I I hear you that if if we can if we can give them the information that they're seeking, which I th- I think you're right is is they want to know that these residents are happy and have a good quality of life and 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 live in a safe healthy home and so on and so forth. If they can get that information the simplest way possible, you'd think they'd also be happy. That's right. And, and you know, I'm, I'm familiar with some organisations where they employ an outsider to come and prepare the paperwork before the audit. I mean, <laughs> which illustrates the sort of yeah. complete disconnection. Um, and the other thing that happens is that in houses where you've got people with severe and profound intellectual disabilities, um, there's this sort of default position that you need to interview people. And and that's really hard yes. if you've never met the person before and if they've got no verbal communication skills. And so yes. as a sort of proxy, they'll look for somebody else who knows that person and they might ask a parent yes. who maybe visits, you know, once every now and again and actually takes mm-hmm. the person out. So really has not a lot of idea about what goes on in the group home. Now, obviously, some parents mm-hmm. have a much, much clearer view and, and are very engaged, yes. but but not all people have parents and not all people, not all parents are engaged in that sense. So finding proxies to answer questions is incredibly, you know, fraught. Um, and it's much better yes. just to go and look. And if you've got some good yes. tools to make judgments, that's the best way of yes. observing, of making judgments about quality. I love that. I love that. I look forward to kind of seeing what you come up with. The, uh, the sort of primary sort of impetus for me uh, um, uh, bringing on the podcast, well, it's just to talk about group homes in general, but some some research that you've kind of been doing over the last uh, maybe 10 years or so um, uh, in this area uh, uh, of, of what you call kind of group home, group home culture um, and, and, and kind of what, what is it that makes 
a good group poem or a better group poem than a not so good group poem. And it seems to be this idea, uh, uh, this, uh, this concept of culture that you come up with. I wonder if, if we can sort of maybe spend the, you know, a good chunk of time here now talking about sort of what is it that makes a good group poem? So what are those indicators that you're looking at? And then, and, 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 and how do we, you know, how do we, how do we assess that so that we, you know, so it's not just a sort of a subjective sort of thing. Well, so I mean, culture culture is very different in group homes that have good outcomes for people, um, mm. and and I guess good outcomes look like uh, you know a good quality of life, good staff practice, high levels of engagement, um, yep. and ticks on all of those aspects of quality of life. But the, you know, the question is, well how do you create that and you create it one way mm-hmm. through sort of practice but the other way is through culture which is the set of of underpinning assumptions about the way we do things around here so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. practice is a sort of uh, it's one aspect and you can see it of a culture so you can see that staff are, are, are doing good practice but it's the underlying values and assumptions and the way things are organized that sort of creates the culture it's about what staff think, what they say, what they do, and how they use all the sort of objects around them. So you can walk into a group home, you can get a sense of the culture by what you see, what you hear, um, and and how people are respecting and interacting with each other. So, mm-hmm. and, and culture is a slippery thing. You, it's hard to see, but you get a sense of it. And we we did a, a, a large ethnographic study on culture in what we called under group homes, and then we mm. looked at and we ended up with sort of five dimensions of culture. And then we looked at okay, so what does it look like in better performing group homes, mm-hmm. and, and and ended up with the sort of the other end of some of these dimensions. So we we sort of landed on five dimensions. What the first one is around the power holders and the alignment of those power holders. So that's the the people who have formal power in the house, so maybe the house supervisor, or it may be Mm. in underperforming homes, it may be the clique of staff that aren't the formal supervisors that hold the power. Mm. So Mm. who holds the power in the house and how do their values align with the values of the organisation that they're working for and or Mm -hmm. the values then of of sort of broader policy. And in the underperforming houses, we found a whole sort of disconnect between those values. So the staff often held quite different values uh, from the bigger organisation and they didn't agree with, with some of the sort of bigger policy things. Whereas in the in the really good group homes, we found there was this real alignment between formal power holders and the sort of power, expected power structure. So the house supervisor was often the sort of undisputed leader, but at the same mm. time shared that power uh, amongst the team. So there was a sense of shared responsibility and teamwork within mm. the house. So everybody had responsibility for making sure there was good practice happening and people had a good quality of life and the values of the team were shared and were lined up with the values of the organisation. So that sort of power structure and the values is really important. Um, 
The second sort of dimension is what we call regard for residents. It's it's this: are the residents regarded as as other and as uh, fundamentally mm. different? This will be familiar to people who've worked in institutions and worked in the field for a long time. You know, do we see do do they see the people they're supporting as different from from other people, as different from themselves as mm. staff, or do they see them as part of the same sort of diverse humanity, uh, you know, that we all belong to. And so do they acknowledge uh, the differences that people have, not them, but attend and pay attention to those differences uh, without devaluing them? Um, and and mm. that's completely different from uh, from seeing people as, as other. And, yeah. and I guess, the you know, the good illustration of sort of that regard or respect that people have for residents you see that in the way staff talk, you see it in the way staff behave, but you also see it in artefacts, you know, in how the house is organised. So is there a staff toilet? Mm. Why is there a staff toilet? Mm. Is the staff mm -hmm. toilet much cleaner and, and nicer than the toilet that the residents are expected to use? Yes. Is there separate crockery that the staff use? You know, do they get iffy if yes. you as a visitor come in and try and use a cup that one of the residents might use? I mean... It sort of reinforces then a culture of difference and anotherness. Yes. Um, so there's a, there's a lot sort of in there, and and what we found is that the, the in the good group homes there was this amazing regard and respect um, and acknowledging of difference uh, in relation to the people that were being supported, and there was and the, the staff relationships they saw them the people they were supporting as people who had feelings, who could learn, who had families, who hmm. could do activities. Um, hmm. So the third the third sort of dimension of culture that we looked at is the perceived purpose, and we've talked a bit about this already. Like yes. what do the staff think they're there to do? Um, are they there to, to look after people and to take people out, <laughs> you know, for community inclusion mm -hmm. now and again, yep. go on a train somewhere else and then come mm. back again? Um, with no purpose, or are they there? Mm -hmm. And what we landed on this term that was very apparent in the better group homes was making the life that each person wanted it to be. So they saw mm. their purpose as recognising and, and responding uh, and respecting people's preferences so that people could have the type of life that they wanted and, mm -hmm. and ensuring that people were engaged but also were cared for in terms of their personal care needs, uh, in terms of doing that with dignity and paying attention to people's comfort. So there's a caring and a support element there to making sure each person could have the life they wanted. Mm -hmm. And so that's the, that was the underlying purpose. And then the next dimension is more, more visible, is working practices. So in the, in the mm. poorer group homes, the working practices were centred on the staff. They were staff-centred. Um, they mm -hmm. prioritised the needs of staff, so the shifts that mm -hmm. people wanted to watch, the television programmes mm -hmm. that people wanted to watch, the activities mm -hmm. that staff liked to do. Those were the things that drove the sort of working practices of staff. And they tended to treat people not as individuals but, but sort of as a group, so they were group-based practices too. Whereas in the good group post, they were what you know the the term person centered so they were it was the priorities were around what was it that each individual wanted 
and needed and you organised mm-hmm. what you did around that rather than around what you as a staff member wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so people were very attentive. The support was based on relationships. It was flexible. And there were lots of sort of momentary fun type of interactions with people. Um, so, you know, you could unpack that whole sort of working practices thing and trust the differences, but you get a sense when you go into a home of what that culture is and what type of practices, you know, there are. You, uh, you hear mm-hmm. staff say things, well, I'm not, you know, we're going here today because that's where I want to go. I've really always wanted to go to that cafe, so we'll go try that cafe. Or I'm not taking people to, yeah. to the tennis because I don't like tennis. And and the classic one mm-hmm. for me has always been, I'm not taking uh, this person to church because it's a different faith from my own. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that should have nothing to do with that. Uh, you should be supporting yes. the person to follow their own culture and their own faith. Um, but you can see how staff fall into uh, a very staff-centred type of practices if nobody's challenging that. And then, then the final dimension uh, is about orientation to change and new ideas. So in really poor group mm. homes, staff are very resistant to change. Uh, they're very sceptical about external uh, policies and they'll procrastinate uh, and find excuses about why they don't do things. Um, oh, we mm. can't do that now because we've got to do this and this. We might do it in three months' time. Um, whereas, And they're also very, very uncertain about people coming in from outside. Um, whereas in mm-hmm. in the better group homes, there's this sense of openness uh, to to new ideas and to outsiders, and they welcome people from outside. They welcome different perspectives about things. So, you know, that's that's a long answer, but that was the sort of contrast we found. And then mm. that took a lot of ethnographic work, which is very very time consuming. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously, you can't you can't sort of do that all the time. And so what we thought was, well, we need to turn this into some sort of quantitative measure. How do we actually know yes. what what these things look like? How do we measure it? And so one of my PhD students who's now finished, Lincoln Humphreys, uh, spent his entire PhD at developing the group home culture scale, uh, working hmm. with our qualitative work and turning it into a scale that's now been published. It's a reliable valid scale and he found that you know we had collapsed some items together and so he ended up with seven uh, dimensions Um, and we've started to use that quite a lot now in in our work and it it requires it's obviously based on the perceptions of staff because that's what culture is how they think things should be done and uh, you can end up with a score uh, on each of these seven dimensions, I can talk about them if you want, um, and that enables you uh, to analyse uh, what what the culture looks like in a particular group home. And the most interesting thing is that it actually looks different um, in different group homes in the same organisation, um, huh. which is sort of really surprising. You would think it would be similar, but there again, maybe if there isn't good strong practice leadership and good organisational leadership, staff just do their own thing. So some houses work it out one way and some groups of staff work it out another way. 
Mm-hmm. And so that is a, it's a really good sort of diagnostic tool for organisations uh, in terms of what the culture is. And what, what we're trying to do at the moment, I guess, is to collect a bigger data set um, about culture in group homes along with a data set about quality of life outcomes uh, in terms of engagement and to see, you know, is there, is there a, do they match each other? So, you know, mm. is culture a good indicator of outcomes, which we suspect it is, but which dimensions of culture are most important? And are, are there sort of t- typical cultures? Can you characterise them? So is, are there patterns to mm-hmm. the way the seven sort of dimensions or subscales mm-hmm. sort of fall? So that's sort of work in progress that we've got going at the moment. How that's really interesting, and I like the idea of having a measure because I I have done a little bit of ethnographic study, and you know, to essentially sit in a group home for eight or nine hours in a row every day, and 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 write down everything you see. I know that's pretty time consuming and not something a lot of folks can pull off. Um, what about I just just. How do you? How do you, I've heard of sort of different different answers from sort of different folks I've interviewed. How, what are you folks using to measure to, for measuring quality of life? The second secret word is choice. Well, we use. I mean, we use as a proxy for quality of life, often engagement. So Mm -hmm. what is the level of engagement? What is the percentage of time that people are engaged in meaningful activities and social relationships? Um, Mm -hmm. And because if you're not engaged, then you're not socially included. You haven't got friends. uh, You're not doing physical uh, well-being things. And you're probably not emotionally uh, feeling very bright either. So, we we use that as a sort of proxy on research point of view. We also have, um, you know, there's there's various measures about uh, community inclusion. There's map mapping tools around people's social networks and social relationships. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a whole range of quality of life uh, sort of measures. But I think what we know is that quality of life is associated with good practice um Mm. and so you can spend a lot of time demonstrating what a terrible quality of life people have um yes but (laughs) if you measure practice and engagement those are really good indicators for you and and one of the i mean the the other way that people think about quality of life is uh things like goal attainment scaling so somebody got a a good Mm. person-centered plan and and are they reaching their goals but Danger with that is that it only highlights a goal might be a holiday, and that's a sort of one-off event. It's not a good indicator yes. of the quality of life all the other days in your life, which is yes. why you know we focus on this sort of everyday support and levels of engagement. I I like the idea of uh, of level of engagement and good practice because. I've, a lot of the quality of life measures that are out there, uh, and I had a really interesting discussion on a previous episode with uh, Dr. Uh, Darren Bowring. And, uh, he's a UK guy that's mm-hmm. uh, been doing a lot of research in this area. And uh, we were kind of talking about how a lot of these quality, these sort of 
those don't sort of domain kind of based quality of life measures. Um, you know, do you have a job? Do you own your own home? Are you independent? So on and so forth. You know, um, um, uh, tend to be really subjective. Uh, you know, and he he brought up an example of a, of an individual he was supporting who, um, you know, was on um, uh, was sort of spending most of his time in sort of the the basement suite of of his of his home share or whatever. Um, you know, and maybe playing video games and watching TV. And the staff were really working to sort of you know help him get get a job and, and get some employment, and get independent. And, and and the fella said to to Darren, he said, Darren, you know, I'm I'm on disability right now. I, I disability pays for all my food and my housing, so I don't actually need a job, nor do I want a job. Um, and my quality of life is quite high right now. I'm a pretty happy guy sitting in my basement playing video games and watching TV. And I thought, you know, certainly on, on one of those sort of domain level scales, he would, his quality of life would rate quite low. Um, but when you look at sort of, like you said, just general le level of engagement in sort of anything, it doesn't sort of matter so much what the activity is. It's just, are you doing something? And then, like you said, good practice. So, you know, are, are the staff sort of engaged in those, you know, kind of, um, you know, active support uh, activities, the, the positive, you know, kind of group home culture sort of indicators. It's a pretty good chance you're going to have uh, a, a relatively, um, um, you know, happy group of folks. So I, I, I like I like that sort of level of engagement because it's nice and it's nice in general. It's not sort of specific to any any particular activity and i think you know and i, and I think it's also important to recognize that quality of life i mean there's some objective issues around obviously health um, and emotional well-being yes. um but the rest of it is very subjective um yours yes. and mine idea of what a good quality of life might be might be quite different and yes and we shouldn't you know i mean this goes back to the bigger issues about normalization and the way it's been interpreted you know should mm -hmm. we be pushing people to follow uh the social norms uh which then devalues difference um you know why mm -hmm. should somebody with a severe and profound disability who really has got no conceptualization of what work or employment is why should they be expected to have a, a goal around employment in their in their funding plan i mean that's just completely devaluing them as a human mm -hmm. being and, and mm -hmm. saying you've got to be like everybody else, whereas, you know, they mm -hmm. may enjoy a whole range of different things. Yes. So uh, there's, there's lots of value stuff embedded in this whole issue about um, measuring outcomes for people, uh, which you have to be really aware of, I guess. Yes. Now, the, the one area where I think, you know, most of uh, my listeners and certainly my experience over the years has been is that in those group homes where you have folks uh, not necessarily engaging in, in, in challenging behavior, well, that's certainly a component, but where you have folks that are, you know, and, and, and I never sort of know what the appropriate term is, but I guess sort of, more on the severe kind of profound level of intellectual disability, um, uh, uh, not so much not so much to the point of of uh, well maybe even to the point of sort of you know uh, being being bedridden at some level, uh, but um, 
these seem to be the most some of the more difficult contexts to work in for staff. And when you have an in, when you have individuals in the home that are you know somewhat able or somewhat verbal or vocal, I guess um, um, it seems to be you know easier for staff to sort of you know facilitate engagement and facilitate sort of social activities because you know some of those perceived abilities are there like you must be vocal and you must be able to have a social interaction we know that's not true but that's sort of you know the perception of staff what what i don't even know what the question is here but in terms of kind of working in group homes with folks where you know they do have that sort of that more kind of severe level um are, are there different ways of of kind of improving those settings and then on a sort of related question which i think is one of the biggest challenges for um uh, for staff in these settings is are there are there ways that you found to help residents with the, the, the more severe levels of intellectual disability you know, build build social networks. That seems to be a. It seems to be that the social networks of most of these folks tend to be paid supports only. Mm. There's a lot. There's a lot in that question, but there is. I'm sorry. I think the <laughs> the important issue here is that consistently in all of the research that we've done and all of the research uh, that other people have done about group homes is that people with more severe and profound intellectual disabilities have a poorer quality of life, are engaged for less time and get poorer support. You know, so why is it that they're getting poorer quality support than people who are more able? Because they're the very people that need better quality support because they need support to be engaged. But it's, I guess what we have sort of found is that in order to provide good active support, then you need to understand the principles and you need to be able to apply them to the people that you're supporting. So you need mm. to understand uh, how to communicate. Um, you need to, to understand and to get to know the preferences of that person and know what, they, what they're what they able to do independently and what they need support to do. So mm. and many staff work in group homes where they don't know the person well enough. So they don't know how to interact with the person. They don't know they need to watch. They don't know what people's sort of uh, facial movements might be, what people's gestures might mean. So it's being able to tune in to that person to spend, you know, having spent time observing and knowing them or learnt from other staff. So there's the issue about knowing the person well enough and knowing how to adapt your support to that person. And it's being trained when you are trained in active support, to apply it to people with severe and profound disabilities, because it's, as I said before, it's very different than than applying it to somebody with with um, who needs sort of less support. And our our findings about sort of the design and the mix of people in group homes suggest that it's very hard for staff to move from supporting somebody with a mild intellectual disability one moment to supporting somebody mm. with a severe and profound disability the next moment. Yes. So if you think of the spectrum maybe of, of people on the uh, adaptive behaviour scale, you've got people at one mm. end and people at the other end, and our yes. research suggests if you break it into three, you need to have a mix of people who have adjacent sort of quadrants 
that's four probably but you know so uh, mm. you don't have to have everybody with severe and profound disability but people with severe and profound disability with people with more moderate disability or people with mild intellectual disability with more moderate disability but not people with mm. mild intellectual disability and severe and profound disability because it's a yes. big jump for staff and staff need to be supported to, to really hone their practice with that group of people. And active support was actually mm -hmm. developed um, in particularly in relation to people with more severe and profound disabilities. So if it's done well, well it's it's sort of the ideal practice. Um, and so, you know, there are other, um, other uh, sort of interventions like uh, in intensive interactions, uh, about which there's not a lot of evidence, but the sort of practice wisdom that they they work. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. There's some work that one of my other PhD students, Hilary Johnson, did with, was about how you uh, form relations with people with more severe disabilities. Um, you need to mm. spend, hang out with them, have moments of fun with them, uh, get on their level um, and mm -hmm. not impose sort of, your values and your ideas so uh, that mm -hmm. you can do good practice with that group of people it takes skill and it takes good support and reinforcement from practice leaders but mm -hmm. the problem then in terms mm -hmm. of in relationships uh is that we know for that group of people often they they only have family members mm -hmm. if they're lucky uh, and staff yep. who are in their social network and, and part of the reason for that is that staff don't know how to how to foster social interactions with people out in the community and how to build those sorts yes. of networks. Um, yes. And and on the other hand, members of the community really don't know how to interact with people with severe and profound disabilities. They feel often mm -hmm. really uncomfortable. How do we do this? And you know, they they sort of avoid it. So staff need to act as a sort of intermediary interpreter. Uh, in relation mm -hmm. to starting to build people's networks. And there's lots of uh, interventions, particularly from the US. Um, some of the people from mm -hmm. Minnesota have, uh, you know, there's a whole literature about how you develop friendships and relationships of people in the community. But one of the things that, that we've done that we've sort of trying to develop more evidence for is, you know, we often see this difference between people being present in the community and being completely sort of ignored um, mm -hmm. or even shunned. And then we say, mm -hmm. well, the other end of that is people having friendships. But there's actually something in between, which is uh, mm. being acknowledged, uh, recognised for who you are, slowly being known by name, sharing sort of activities, not being a friend necessarily, but but. Uh, mm -hmm. but sharing things together. So we call that uh, convivial encounters. So if you, mm. for example, if you if you go to the same, and I hate to use example, let's not use it, um, coffee shop, we often talk about that, <laughs> but if you go to the same yoga class sure. every week, yep. not try a different one from every suburb where you live, if you go to the same one mm. every week and somebody there to support you, the chances are that, you will start to, people will nod at you, people will say hello, they might yes. ask what your name is. You might start to become a part of that group and have convivial encounters with people, which will yes. make them feel good and you feel good. 
and may or may not then develop into something else. But in their own right, those encounters are really important. And the best example of, you know, there's lots of catalysts for encounters and it's about going to similar places, sharing Mm -hmm. activities and interests. So it's things that you're interested in that the other people they're interested in or it's having a dog. Um, You know, people talk to you when you go out into the community and you've got a dog. Um, (laughs) And I reckon we could, you know, you can see it happening in Australia in communities during lockdown. Um, People have made huge sort of social networks based on their dogs in their local areas. Now, how many people Hmm. with intellectual disabilities who live in group homes have dogs or get to take out for walks? Because it's not many. Not many. Yeah. So it, it's that catalyst that people people will stop and say, oh, "What's your dog called?" Or you'll have a com- have a conversation mm. about mm-hmm. dogs. Mm-hmm. So if support workers understand some of these things that support people to have mm. encounters, um, then you can start to develop broader networks, which are comprised not only of friends but of you know acquaintances. People that only mm-hmm. see in particular settings, but then become very important and often miss the person when they're not there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there is a there is a whole set of practices uh, and research around those types of strategies. So we shouldn't dismiss it as not being possible, but we shouldn't always see it as as developing close friendships. It's having a whole mm. array of different types of relationships in your life which are important i i really like that and i can relate to that i mean i don't really have many close friendships uh but i just enjoy engaging with people in the community um and uh you know and often it's just a hello or 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 um, you know an an update on the week or or whatever and 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 that's it and and you're right it, it i think the I think I think we often assume the outcome needs to be the type of friendships we as staff have, um, and 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 if we can't get to that, then sort of you know, you know, what's the point? So I really like the idea of the the convivial encounters, and I think and and you and and I and and I, am I correct that either yourself or folks sort of. Um, in in your in your t- in, in your colleagues of yours have actually done some research around the dog piece. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so my colleague Emma Bold, um, who's a dog person, uh, she led a piece of research that you know showed us the evidence about that, and I think she's just published another paper too. She's moved to another university, but yeah. Um, and it's like it it's we've got the evidence now, but also you just need to be a dog owner to know. <laughs> what those you know what sort of interactions you have it's like being a parent pushing a baby around people will people will just stop and talk to you like they put all their all their inhibitions um and that's what happens when you go out with dogs so there is evidence uh and there's there's a lot of evidence just from from people without disabilities too um so it's not a therapeutic thing i mean often we we end up in this therapeutic right. world. Oh, you have a dog, it will make you feel better, help your emotions. That's not mm. it. It will act as a catalyst for social interactions. So we shouldn't mm. pathologize and therapeutize things. Um, right. No, that's really cool. And, and, and I, you know, I, I have a, I have a dog, and and uh, and I think I, I don't know if uh, 
Dr. Bullard's research found this, but I, I found that sort of the one probably issue around sort of social interactions is with my dog is that I end up going to say the dog park or going to meet up with some other dogs. And if I come back again the next time, they they all remember my dog's name, <laughs> but but nobody knows who I am. <laughs> and I've I've even had a few times where I, I've I've had uh, people walking by uh, who who knew who knew my cat's name and didn't know who I was. Um, and and I don't even know how they got my cat's name. But you take uh, them, you become, <laughs> and you have a new identity. Then you're you're yes. Joe's owner now. Being known as Joe's owner is being known as a person. So we all have all yes. sorts of different identities, um, and, yes. and and that's sort of what happens. That's the sort of theory behind encounters is that you you share momentary identities with other people, and that's what brings you together yeah. and makes that connection. So if you're in a in a bus queue, for example, you're sharing an identity as a frustrated passenger who's waiting in the rain, um, and then that yes. might lead to social interactions. If you've got somebody there to facilitate that happening, or if the person yes. uh, who's next to you in the queue has got the sort of skills and confidence to start a conversation with you, you might never see that person again, but you've had that sort of moment of shared identity uh, and connection. Absolutely. And and, and we shouldn't under underestimate mm-hmm. the value to people's emotional well-being of those sorts of of momentary connections. The second secret word is choice. Yes, yeah, no, I mean it, it's really yeah, the, the the identity piece I think is huge because it really sort of gives you that you know even if you might not be able to sort of you know uh, articulate it, uh, it, it does give you that sort of sense of of personhood where before you were this you know individual I, I really like I really found interesting when you're kind of going back a uh, way back in sort of those dimensions of culture and the, and this whole concept of othering I, I I have a couple of episodes that haven't been published yet uh, where I interviewed a couple of folks about stigma mm-hmm. um, and uh, othering was something that came up quite a bit in those in those interviews it was it was a concept I never heard of but it, it makes a lot of sense that they're sort of you know, and 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 it really is in a way. It's almost it, it, it it's 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 a it's a removal of identity and personhood. So yeah, just even being known as a dog owner, I, I could see now that being you know a, a a pretty you know amazing shift for someone who's never sort of made that connection. Mm. Um, really, really interesting stuff. I, I I'm I'm. It feels good to know that there's folks out there doing this work and looking to improve these contexts because I think group homes, like you said in the beginning when you were sort of getting into the field and, and group homes, I think certainly the one thing I think we have in common around the world is is that group homes were the, you know, sort of the, the first thing we tried after after when, when when institutions started closing down and we thought you know if we just we have a house that's in the community everything's going to be great now because they have a home and and yet you know there there were just sort of so many problems associated with it that we've we've talked a lot about today and those problems haven't gone away and haven't changed uh, i've been in the field for 20 years working in group homes and 
the group homes I work in today are much like the group homes I worked in 20 years ago with all those similar problems. Um, and so it's, it's really great to know that there are tools out there, there are strategies, there are approaches. Um, um, I, I, I think it's super powerful to know that it's not just the staff that need help, um, you know, and, and, uh, and, and in order to kind of have a really sustainable, you know, uh, survivable, um, you know, sort of program, it has to go all the way up to, you know, the, the, the whatever you call it, the executive directors, the chief folks, mm. and, and having that kind of mission. It really reminds me of kind of a that school-wide kind of PBS approach. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the, I really like sort of your, your, your comment on PBS earlier and, and you're, you're so right. There is that in, in schools, we really see that triangle happen a lot with, with sort of the tier, the different tiers of support and tier one is sort of these universal strategies and tier two kind of is lower effort, but more focused. And then the tier three is, is, is the things we're all familiar with, with that sort of intensive practice. And I, and, and it really makes sense to me that this, that this active support piece really fits nicely as that, as kind of that tier one intervention in, in, in sort of these group home settings that can really make, make, make huge differences. And then maybe some of that practice leadership piece, I think as well is, is, is sort of a tier one intervention for the staff, um, and so it's just, it's just nice to know this is out there and I'm hoping I'm, I'm going to share a lot of, uh, of, uh, of your work and, and the papers and, and, and links to sort of packages and whatnot that folks can kind of tap into, because I think, I think this is a, is an issue that, uh, that, that spreads, spreads far and wide and, and, and really, need, and really needs, really needs, um, this kind of work. I'm curious, um, just kind of, as we kind of wrap up, what, what, uh, in addition to some of the stuff you've already mentioned, what are sort of uh, current and kind of future projects for your, your team? <laughs> hmm. Well, one of the things I think that it's really important to remember is that it's it's not necessarily the model of group homes that is the problem. It's the quality mm. of the support that's provided because yes. there is enormous variability between group homes. But what's happening yes. in, in Australia and around the world, I think, at the moment, is that people are searching for alternatives um, you know, the sort of generic idea of people owning their own homes, being their own yes. renters and getting drop-in support. And, you know, we've done a couple of small studies in that space, as has Tim Stanton. Mm. Um, but there's a dearth of research there about what does good support look like if you're living uh, more independently um, and we know that actually the quality of life of people living more independently is probably merely similar, pretty mediocre, and it's quite similar to the people mm -hmm. living in group homes because there's all sorts of hmm. loneliness, not being connected to the community, yes. not be anybody coordinating your health care. So that, I guess that's our next sort of vista in a sense is, well, what are good yeah. models of uh, that aren't group homes of sort of drop-in support or alternative uh, support for people who need 20-hour support. And I guess my our, our research agenda is about people who don't have strong families, who are socially and economically disadvantaged, who can't buy, yeah. a, you know, good models, Can't parents can't buy their sons or daughters a house and can't spend all of their time managing those resources for their sons and right. daughters. It's like how can we 
almost replicate this what parents provide uh, for those people who mm-hmm. don't have resourceful parents and don't have economic mm. resources. Mm. So I guess that's sort of where we're going with that um, in in terms of but we need some really good demonstration models to evaluate uh, first. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that we've been doing and that sort of uh, will continue to do is trying to understand more about uh, support and choice, choice and control, mm. and the whole concept of supported decision-making and the practice that you need to put that into, yes. into practice. So we've, we've developed a, a sort of practice framework uh, for supporting people to make decisions, and we need to test that uh, in relation, particularly to people who are, you know, direct support workers, families, support coordinators, case managers. So it applies to everybody. So what does that look like for different groups mm. of uh, supporters, and what does how do we develop good practice in that area? So I guess that's yes. sort of where we're going. But we're also after two years, we are now just started to collect data for the sort of next leg of our longitudinal study so everybody's busy out there doing observations at the moment right finally able to go back into the homes and yeah that's right kind of do that work with yeah with those restrictions getting lifted that's great but in australia i think it's important to say that the you know the disability support system has been under enormous stress staff have organizations have because of covid and they're still under stress because of lack of staff and people getting sick so research has to sort of stand back and let, let them get back on their feet to some extent too. I always feel yes, we shouldn't yeah. intrude too much when people are trying to deliver services and that's the most important thing really. Um, yeah, so that's where yeah, we're at. Absolutely, yeah. When, when, and it's, we're certainly seeing that here as well as that, you know, the, the those practice leaders that you're, you, you speak about are, are now having to do a lot of the frontline work because they're just starting there just aren't people available and uh, to and it's it, it is a bit of a crisis situation so i'm hoping i'm hoping these these jobs get filled again when uh, as 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 things start to ease up mm. but i think um, um uh, that's been that it's been difficult uh, i don't think fo- folks aren't returning back to their old their old jobs uh, and they're they they've come up with sort of new things and working from home and whatnot so yeah well it'll be interesting to see mm. Thank Chris. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's it, it's it's. Uh, I, I've been uh, I've been uh, uh, eager to have this conversation for a lot of years, and uh, and and I think you've just brought so much so much value and 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 and, and good information to uh, to uh, to to this you know big area uh, that's that, that's worldwide. Um, and, uh, you know, I hope, uh, I hope we can keep in touch and, and have you back on again sometime. Okay. Thanks very much for having me. And, um, one day when the world opens up, I might get to do some traveling again. I should come and see what's going on in Canada at some point. Well, <laughs> I, I, I'm in the closest province, so you'll, you'll have to land nearby first. So I, I'll def- definitely, uh, come by and say hello. <laughs> okay. Thanks very much. Right. Cheers. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.